Good morning, everybody. We are actively participating in Lent this year by becoming more like Jesus through this 40-day journey. Throughout our small groups uh, and this sermon series, we are reflecting on what we could be doing better to help reorient, help rearrange, and recenter on God. For when we actually take the time, believe it or not, to honestly look in the mirror, look, we all look in the mirror, but do we honestly look in the mirror? And when we take the time to honestly look in the mirror, I think we understand we can better adjust our lives to recenter on God. And when we do that self-consciously, when we do that honestly, authentically, we get transformed. Transformed by the Holy Spirit, which we sang that song about. Transformed so that we could have a more Jesus-shaped life. The whole reason for the study. And Lent is a great time to honestly reflect and readjust our lives to look more like Jesus. Because who wouldn't want that? <laughs> who wouldn't want to look more like Jesus? After all, he is our Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord, King of Kings, Mighty and Wonderful Counselor. Who wouldn't want that? And so we've been going through this Lenten sermon series, kind of examining the traits of Jesus that we could and probably should be doing a lot better at so we could look more like Jesus. We started off. We started off examining repentance. A Jesus-shaped life includes repentance. Repentance, once again, it's when we tune out all the outside noise of the world and we stop our sinful nature and we Turn back to God. It's what we're supposed to do, repent. Last week, we talked about obedience. A Jesus-shaped life includes obedience to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We see the importance of obedience because of the life that Jesus played out in his earthly ministry. He was obedient even to the point of death. A rather cruel and painful death at that, I might add, death on a cross. Today, we are going to hone in on another trait. We are going to examine why a Jesus-shaped life includes forgiveness. But before we get there, will you all join me in an attitude of prayer this morning? Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be found holy and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As Christians, we are meant to embrace forgiveness and to extend forgiveness. It's the two steps. Forgiveness is offered to us by our Lord, and we are to extend that type of forgiveness back to other people, even if they hurt us. It's that simple. End a discussion, end a sermon. Let's all go home. Woo! Ah, if only forgiveness was that easy, right? If only it was that simple. Because we can talk about forgiveness all that we want, but you can't talk about forgiveness until you first talk about pain. So let's do that. Let's talk about pain. Someone has to hurt someone in order to talk about forgiveness, right? It's kind of a, the cart that has to come before the horse or whatever that saying is. That, that would never happen though, right? We would never hurt other people, right? We would never need forgiveness as Christians, <laughs> Uh, but you know, since we're talking about hurting people this morning, I thought let's talk about the thing that hurts the most amount of people, and that is politics. <laughs> you, many of you know my disdain for politics, but ironically, I do pay attention to politics quite often because 
Uh, I just believe with every ounce of my being that when you can make a difference, you try to make a difference. That's why I pay attention. I try and pay attention to local and state and federally. What's going on so that when I can actually make a difference, I know what I could be doing. But one political story last week kind of hurt me in a little bit. It happened and came out on February 21st. So we're talking about just a little bit over a week ago. The U.S. Department of Education rolled out the next steps to a new federal loan forgiveness program that has now helped over 3.9 million borrowers out of $138 billion in student unpaid debts. Wow. Talk about needing forgiveness. $138 billion worth of student loans. Uh, President Biden touted his relief plan because it is campaign season after all. He said, and I quote, it's good for the economy on a whole by freeing millions of Americans from crushing debt of student loan programs, it means they can finally move on with their lives instead of their lives being put on hold. I found this story a rather interesting juxtaposition for Robbie. If I'm being honest, I got a tattle on myself this morning because I read the article and got a little upset. When I heard about the billions in loan forgiveness, I got a little salty. I was there thinking to myself, man, where was this plan a decade ago when my wife and I were paying off our student loans? I, I felt like I needed to go outside, stare at the clouds, and shake my fist at them. That's, I must be getting older. I don't know. Here's the irony, though, and, why, and the whole point of why I'm telling you this story. It's not to get your blood pressure up on a Sunday morning, I promise. But I don't know about you, but it happens to me so often that I have no problem embracing forgiveness in my life. Hey, if I mess up, man, I'll embrace that forgiveness right away from Stephanie. You better believe it. <laughs> but too often, I really struggle at extending forgiveness. Or better yet, in this situation, I had problems with someone extending forgiveness to someone who didn't even affect me in any way, shape, or form. Do you have the same trouble that I do? Uh, are you quick to receive forgiveness but you really struggle to extend for forgiveness. Here's the juxtaposition, okay? As Christians, we know that we are wonderfully, incredibly, and mercifully forgiven. Even though we don't deserve it, right? We are forgiven. Jesus goes to the cross, is the ultimate forgiving act that could possibly ever happen. Jesus goes to the cross and it washes us clean from sin. If we go to the Lord and confess our sins, we are washed clean from the cross. And because of our Lord's great sacrifice, this shining example on a hill, we are to do what? We are to also extend that same level of forgiveness to other people. It's written all over our scriptures from the beginning to the end. We just prayed it, to be honest with you. Out of Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, we get the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the Old Testament, I love this phrase from Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesizing the words of God. And he says, it's I, I, the Lord, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. In the New Testament, Paul makes the rubber meet the road in Colossians. He says, bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, 
forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you are to forgive each other, so you also must forgive. And then probably the most powerful example of forgiveness is when Jesus is hanging on the cross in excruciating pain, he prays out of Luke chapter 23. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. (laughs) But I live in the real world with all of you. I know how hard it is to extend that level of forgiveness, especially when someone hurts you, right? However, if we're to live a Jesus-shaped life, Forgiveness is a mandatory requirement. We are to be, as I like to put it, professional forgivers, as it says in the scriptures back here. Uh, Pastor Steve Cordell from our book that you're going to read this week, the author of of our Lenten Bible study, he says a Jesus-shaped life has no room for grudges. None. Following Christ means forgiving others just as we've been forgiven by God, but you've probably gotten to the point, you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, come on, Robbie. (laughs) How can I forgive someone for what they did? You don't understand how hard or how deep they cut and hurt me. You don't understand, Robbie. You don't understand what they've put me through, the pain of the last few years or decades or for my whole entire life. You just don't understand. And I get it. All we have to do is turn on our television screens or open up our social media or scroll on our news feeds and all of a sudden we see the tragic, terrible, sin-scarred world at work, don't we? We see it. We see the horrific actions of other people. And that's when we find it so difficult to extend that compassion, that, that enthusiasm for forgiveness. We just can't bring ourselves to do it. And I ran across this quote this week that was too good not to work into the sermon. General James Oglethorpe, who was the founder and the first governor of the state of Georgia in our union, in in America, he once ran into John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had a conversation with him, and he said, and I quote, I never forgive and I never forget. And John Wesley's reply was, well, then sir, I hope you never sin." Because that's, the, that's what happens when you, you don't ever forgive and you don't ever forget. We get that some people just don't forgive. And we know people who don't forget, right? <laughs> there are times where we'll see those people who only half-heartedly forgive. They'll say, they'll say the forgiveness part uh, up front, out loud, to everyone to hear. But then they hold a grudge inside their heart for a long time. That's the half-hearted forgiveness. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about, that type of half-hearted forgiveness? If you forgive someone, but then you still hold a grudge, do you really forgive them? (laughs) No, of course not. Because what happens when you hold a grudge is you are harboring resentment in your soul. And resentment turns to bitterness, which turns to anger and turns to spite. And you're just back up being as upset as you were at the beginning. I love it this way. I heard someone once say that if you hold a grudge against someone, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. All you're doing is poisoning your own soul by holding a grudge. Some people, though, they won't ever forgive. I won't forgive and I won't forget. And then there's some people who half-heartedly 
forgive and hold a grudge. But this morning, I want to hone in and focus and look in that mirror a little harder, a little more authentically. And I want you to take an honest look at your life along with me, too. I want you to ask yourself the question, do you, number one, do you accept God's forgiveness? And then number two, do you extend forgiveness as God extends forgiveness? Or are you more like General Oglethorpe, never forgiving and never forgetting? Or maybe you still are holding a grudge. The honest to God truth is it's just so tragic to me when we see Christians work through this life and they just can't forgive others. I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me because as Christians, and in order to live a Jesus-shaped life, we have to have forgiveness. It's, it is a, such a crucial requirement because we cannot make it through this life without forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, we start to see how important forgiveness is to a Jesus-shaped life. And of course, it has to do with Peter. God bless Peter. Man, that poor guy gets drugged through the ringer sometimes in the gospel. Then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Now, does Jesus mean that we're to walk around in this life with a legal pad in our pocket, keeping little tally marks for that person, how many times you should forgive your little sibling for pulling your hair if you still got your hair? No, no, no. You shouldn't do that. Does Jesus mean that as professional adults, we should keep a running Excel spreadsheet of all the times that we've heard hurt people and at 77 times it's no more forgiveness after that no that's not what jesus means here this is a clever wordplay you got to dig a little deeper into the scriptures because jesus is telling to peter and peter is using this number seven very specifically seven in the scriptures a lot of times is a stand-in number for perfection for fullness for completion after all how many days did it take god to create the world seven if you look to read the book of Revelation, it's not a coincidence that there's seven churches that are named with seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. Seven is this number of perfection in God's word. Peter is really asking here. He's saying, Lord Jesus, do I really need to forgive people fully and completely? Do I have to fully do it? Can't can I hold a little bit of a grudge? <laughs> and Jesus tells him, not seven times, but 77 times. Not to keep the count. No, what Jesus is doing here is he's upping the ante. He's saying perfection times perfection. That's really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that we are to extend forgiveness as God extends forgiveness, which is, thank goodness, Lee, it is fully, completely, and eternally. That's what we are to strive for, to forgive fully, completely, and eternally. If we don't do that, we fail to live a Jesus-shaped life. You know, I was running yesterday, and on came my, onto my uh, Pandora station, whatever I was listening to, um, a song that caught my attention. It's a song by Hawk Nelson, a contemporary Christian song, um, and the chorus goes like this. If you could count the times that you are forgiven, it's more than the drops of water 
in the ocean. That is what we are to strive for. Think of that imagery of how many drops of water it would take to fill the oceans. That's how many times you are forgiven. We see that in our scriptures, even played out a little further in Micah. I need you guys to understand that you are forgiven. And Micah lays it out perfectly here. He says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passing over our transgressions of the remnant of your possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in showing clemency. Clemency. That's the key word there for forgiveness. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I love that imagery of clemency. Because you know what clemency is, right? It's an abatement of your, of your uh, prison sentence. Clemency is when someone gets released early from jail. And that's what our Lord is doing here. Because you have to understand, when you sin, and you sin just like I sin, every single day, in every single way. <laughs> sin, the wage of that is death. That's the consequences of sin. As Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Yet our Lord takes that death sentence and provides clemency from that jail sentence. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the great love and mercy of our God, he extends us a forgiveness that is unimaginable. That is if we confess our sins. That's the key here. We have to go to him and confess our sins. We talked about that week one of this sermon series when we talked about repentance. But for some, they still just for some reason can't accept God's forgiveness. Do you know those people who, who look in the mirror and they can't even forgive themselves, let alone accept God's forgiveness? <laughs> in Richard Hoffler's book, Will Daylight Come? It includes this great illustration I'm gonna share with you about how sin enslaves us when we don't accept God's Forgiveness. There was a little boy who was visiting his grandparents and was given his very first slingshot. Like any little boy, he went out into the woods to practice and couldn't hit the broadside of the tree or the barn. <laughs> but of course, as he got back to Grandma's house, he caught the glimpse of the pond and saw a meandering duck in the water. Grandma's duck, that was who he saw. Grandma's duck, her backyard friend. On an impulse, what did the little boy do? He took his slingshot, took aim, fired, and it hit. The duck fell dead. The boy rightly panicked. He was desperately ashamed of his actions, so he hid the duck, but only to look up to see his big sister standing by the back door. Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. That is, until lunch that day. Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, you know what? Johnny told me he really wanted the help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And she whispered to him, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing in the pond. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I, I need some help making supper. Sally, can you please stay? And Sally smiled and said, that's all right. Johnny's got it taken care of. Again, she whispered to Johnny, remember the duck. So Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his and his sister's chores, finally he couldn't stand it any longer. He confessed to his grandma that he'd killed the duck, her backyard friend, and she goes, I know Johnny, giving him a hug. She said, I was standing at the window and saw everything from the back door. But because I love you, 
I forgave you in that moment. I was curious and was wondering how long you were going to allow Sally to make you the slave. And so it is with God. When you don't accept his forgiveness, you are imprisoning yourself. You are. You're either refusing to confess your sins to God for some strange reason which baffles my mind because why would you ever withhold your sins to God? God already knows all your sins anyway. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Why would you not tell him your sins? It makes no sense to me. And then why would you not accept this clemency from the sentence of death that God offers you? Accept God's forgiveness. Tell him your sins and you will be set free, but it's hard. I get it. I get it because often we don't want to accept it because we know there's a catch. If you accept God's forgiveness, you also then have to extend God's forgiveness in the same way. You have to set others free from their jail sentence when they hurt you. Simply that means we got to release a person from their debts, from their obligations. It means that we got to be okay with student loan forgiveness, even if you had to pay back all your loans. This is me preaching to myself. But I, I, look, I struggle with this, quite honestly, because there are consequences in this world for sin, is there not? There are consequences when we hurt other people. I live in the Old Testament law of Moses that says an eye for an eye, but that isn't a Jesus-shaped life. It isn't. We should yearn for something so much better than that. A Jesus-shaped life offers forgiveness through the clemency. (laughs) But remember, this is the key to forgiveness. Just because you forgive, that doesn't mean that you're excusing someone's poor behavior or sin. Just because you forgive someone does not mean that you have to continue on in a relationship with that person. No. Just because you forgive doesn't mean that you're going to get the warm and fuzzy feelings of fairness in your life, okay? Revenge is fair. Getting even is fair. There is inevitably something unfair about forgiveness, and we got to be okay with that. (laughs) We do. We have to be okay with that injustice of unfairness. In fact, we actually have to champion that idea in our homes, our schools, and our workplaces. Unfairness. Because, thank God, our God is not fair with us. (laughs) And often when I think of unfair forgiveness in our scriptures, I think of the amazing example of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, we see the first martyr, Stephen, get stoned to death. We do. And we see him in the midst of his persecutors. He forgives them in the midst of his own death. That's crazy to me. He says these words from Acts 7. Verse 60, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Should ring a bell, shouldn't it? I believe those are the pretty close to the same words that Jesus uses on the cross. <laughs> but I get it. It's awfully tough to forgive people. And if you're having a particularly hard time coming to that reality of releasing someone from their prison sentence, you should pray for the courage to offer them clemency. Because here's the thing, if you don't do that, if you hold on to a grudge, it's resentment that's going to start growing in your soul. And resentment turns to bitterness, and when bitterness 
goes into your soul, it is toxic. It is painful. It is hurtful. So much so that Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. A Jesus-shaped life puts away bitterness, resentment, wrath, anger, slander, and it puts forgiveness unfairly first. Just as God has unfairly forgiven you, you are to unfairly forgive others. Let me finish with just a quick story. Once that I heard about Thomas Edison, he and his team were working on this crazy contraption called the light bulb. Perhaps you heard of it. But the first bulb took a whole team of men 24 hours to put just one together. Just one. 24 hours. The story goes that Edison finished his one light bulb. He gave it to a young boy helper to go up the steps, who nervously carried it up the steps, step by step cautiously watching his hands, obviously frightened of dropping such a priceless piece of hard work. But as you probably have guessed, just as with little Johnny with the sling, this poor young fellow made it to the top of the steps and dropped the light bulb. Once again, it took an entire team, a whole nother 24 hours to create this light bulb. Finally, the team was tired, a little bitter, and quite possibly ready for a break. But Edison did something amazing. Guess who he asked to take the ball back up the steps? It was that young boy who dropped the first one. I think that's a model of true forgiveness. It's not allowing the resentment and the bitterness to dictate your behavior, right? It's not allowing it to brew in your soul, becoming toxic sin in your life. Not allowing a begrudging attitude to get in between you and another person. It is to unfairly forgive, even if it makes zero sense. (laughs) For we have a merciful God who extends unfairness, unfairly forgiveness, even when it doesn't make sense. Oh, Heavenly Father, it's through this act of communion that we remember how unfairly forgiven we really are. We're so grateful for the act of your father going or your son going to the cross just so that we could yet celebrate eternal life in your kingdom. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.